My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the August edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover looks at the impact of early life factors on inequalities in risk of overweight in the UK. Childhood overweight and obesity is more common in disadvantaged children, but it is unclear the extent to which early life factors attenuate this relationship. In this issue, Massian and colleagues explore this using data from the UK Millennium Cohort Study. That's 11,764 children. At age 11 years, 28.4% were overweight. That's overweight combined with obesity. Maternal academic qualification at the child's birth was used as a fixed measure of socio-economic circumstance. Children of mothers with no academic qualifications were more likely to be obese than children of mothers with degrees and higher degrees. That was with a relative risk of 1.72, 95% confidence intervals, 1.48 to 2.01. Controlling for prenatal, perinatal and early life characteristics, particularly factors such as pre-pregnancy overweight and maternal smoking during pregnancy, reduced this risk to 1.44, with a confidence interval of 1.23 to 1.69. This study confirms the social gradient in obesity risk, but also specific early life factors that at least partly account for this. The authors call for initiatives and policies to support mothers maintain a healthy weight, breastfeed and abstain from smoking during pregnancy, to improve maternal and child health outcomes and potentially impact on the continuing rise in inequalities in childhood overweight. The second article I'd like to cover this month relates to who comes back with what. This is the rather emotive issue of emergency readmission. More than 30% of children and young people who have an emergency admission to hospital will have at least one further admission in the following two years. Recurrent admissions make up 41% of emergency admissions and 66% of bed days. In this issue, Wiljar and colleagues explore the question, are readmissions for the same condition? The authors use national administrative hospital data and from the primary diagnosis, admissions are coded into six groups. Infection, chronic condition, injury, perinatal associated, pregnancy-related or other. Emergency readmissions within 30 days occurred in 9% and between 30 days and 2 years in 22%. Half of the 30-day readmissions and 40% of the recurrent admissions between 30 days and 2 years were for the same condition. This was consistent across all age groups apart from infants, where it mostly was infection, and young women with pregnancy-related conditions who are more likely to be admitted for the same diagnostic group. In children with chronic conditions, readmission was significantly more likely. That's a relative risk of 1.93 with a confidence interval of 1.89 to 1.99. 
The authors emphasise if a significant number of readmissions are either with a different condition or in children with a chronic health problem, then the presumption that financial penalties for readmission incentivise more effective care of the original problem should be challenged and more specific data sets sought. The third article I'd like to cover this month relates to Is Asthma Overdiagnosed? The National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence, that's NICE, has recommended that clinicians should seek more objective evidence before making a diagnosis of asthma. Underdiagnosed in the past, but have we gone too far in the opposite direction? In a leading article in this issue, Bush and colleagues explore some of the detail. The potential cost of overdiagnosis is not trivial. Does everyone with a chronic cough have asthma? Certainly not. The difficulty is how objective the testing should be. There are some core principles, including a detailed history and examination and a detailed knowledge of the differential diagnosis, which does include normal variant. There should be evidence of variable outflow obstruction, at least in school-aged children, before contemplating an asthma diagnosis. If therapeutic trials of treatment are to be performed, then they should be focused and time-limited, and children should not be left on unproven treatments. The authors make the point that physiological testing in the school-aged child is available at all levels of care. The complexities and the practicalities of the less straightforward patients are discussed, including the potential for more detailed testing, electronic compliance monitoring, and anti-inflammatory therapy. This is an important article to read and consider an editor's choice this month. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to moral distress within the neonatal and paediatric intensive care units. So what is moral distress? Moral distress refers to the anguish experienced when an individual makes a clear moral judgment about what action he or she should take, but is unable to do so because of constraints. And those constraints can be societal, institutional or contextual, with moral residue being the lingering feelings that remain once the morally distressing situation has passed. These are challenging concepts. Modern intensive care units are high-pressure environments where technology creates potential for burdensome care with limited perceived benefits in vulnerable populations. In this issue, Prentice and colleagues review the literature. There are a few studies, just 13, with less than half being multidisciplinary and most looking at nursing responses. Common themes identified were burdensome and disproportionate use of technology perceived not to be in the patient's best interest, and powerlessness to act. Nurses are often portrayed as victims with physicians seen as perpetrators instituting aggressive care. Medical literature describes moral distress in terms of dilemmas or ethical confrontations. There is a need for more to be written about this. These patients are cared for by large multidisciplinary teams and longitudinal data reflecting the views of all stakeholders, including the parents, are required. There is a sensitive and thought-provoking editorial written by David Field and colleagues, Moral Distress 
an inevitable part of neonatal and paediatric intensive care. The fifth article I'd like to cover relates to poverty and child health in the UK. Child poverty is associated with a range of health damaging impacts, negative educational outcomes and adverse long-term social and psychological outcomes. In this issue, Wickham and colleagues outline some key definitions with regard to child poverty, review the links between child poverty and a range of health, developmental, behavioural and social outcomes for children, and describe gaps in evidence and provide an overview of the current policies relevant to child poverty in the UK. Child poverty in the UK has started to rise. It is measured as household income less than 60% of median. UK data from Public Health England shows a clear relationship between child poverty and infant deaths, serious injuries from road traffic accidents, hospital admissions for mental health conditions and obesity. Children living in poverty in the UK are more likely to be born small, be bottle-fed, breathe second-hand smoke, suffer from asthma, have tooth decay and poor form poorly at school. The authors call for child health professionals to support policies to reduce child poverty, provide services that reduce the health consequences of child poverty and work to measure and understand the problem and assess the impact of action. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full article content and thanks for listening.